This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This podcast contains some strong language and descriptions or sounds of violence. Listener discretion is advised. The news begins tonight with the government's announcement that prices for gasoline, diesel fuel, and home heating oil are going up. In the early 1970s, a series of crises cascaded. They looked eerily similar to today's gas prices. We have an energy crisis. Cars were lined up for blocks at some gasoline stations. There was inflation. The energy crisis has developed into a money crisis. We are losing the battle against inflation. And there was a challenge to American democracy. The Watergate fucking caper. Mr. Nixon says emphatically that the White House is in no way involved. Uh, I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting. Congress has drawn its first blood in the Watergate affair. The sudden threats to American security, prosperity, democracy, it felt catastrophic. Good evening. The country tonight is in the midst of what may be the most serious constitutional crisis in its history. You know the gist of what happens next, right? Impeachment begins. Nixon resigns. The country slowly moves on. The economy recovers. The stagnant 1970s turn into the energetic 80s. A movie called Top Gun comes out. Almost 40 years later, there's a sequel. It's pretty good. All right. It's not that tidy. Those troubled days in the mid-1970s marked a turning point in American politics. Our current division and the feeling that democracy is once again at risk, these, in many ways, are the sequel. My name is Ben Bradford. I'm a reporter who spent the last five years exploring the political parties and their battle lines. Why are we so polarized? How did we get here? I'm going to tell you the story of a moment after Nixon's fall and a sea change in American politics. It's a moment when new divisive issues emerge to animate our presidential races. Take a stand against ERA. We oppose the widespread practice of abortion on demand. A fringe faction fights to take over the Republican Party. We wanted a conservative party. We wanted a conservative movement. Democrats undergo their own shift. Carter has stunned the power structure of the Democratic Party. I love this story because you know the names of the primary players. Jimmy Carter. Our country's not strong anymore. Ronald Reagan. We have perverted our Constitution. Gerald Ford. Americans have made an incredible comeback. But the way they acted, how they were perceived, and their bitter personal fights against each other, it's all just about the opposite of their images today. And the result was a seismic reshaping of American politics. From Nuanced Tales, in partnership with WFAE, Distributed by the NPR Network, this is Landslide. The phone lines exploded. President Ford today started scrambling for a new strategy to protect him from Ronald Reagan. I was goddamn mad. Winning the presidency is the most important thing. But what do you do to win it? We begin in the fraught final days of Richard Nixon's presidency. The country was exhausted and disillusioned and an unexpected, unelected president 
was about to find himself in charge. Summer, 1974. The last days of Nixon. No one knew what he would do. The continued seclusion of the president. He'd hold himself away. It looked certain he'd be removed from office. But what's been going on in the White House? Rumors flew that the president had lost it. It's been a scene of incredible tension. Some worried that Nixon was suicidal. Others that he might start a war to stay in office. It was scary because so many other outlandish ideas had turned out to be true. The president had an enemies list. He'd sicked the IRS on political opponents. And the American people knew that in speech after speech, he had deliberately, repeatedly, cold-bloodedly lied to them. Finally, Nixon did appear with a short broadcast from the Oval Office on August 8th, 1974. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. He left the White House the next morning. He walked down the lawn to the presidential helicopter, followed by aides. Before he boarded, Nixon turned and faced the crowd. He raised his arms above his head with his fingers extended into two Vs for victory. He took off defiant, unapologetic. Behind him, he left public trust in tatters. But that was all Gerald Ford's problem now. The mess that Ford faced went beyond simple corruption or the ailing economy or another big problem, anger from the Vietnam War. Americans were losing faith in their government. Before this, for a generation, government meant the New Deal. Social justice through social action. It was space travel. We choose to go to the moon. Democrats and Republicans believed federal strength solved problems. Assuring better jobs, better living, better opportunities. But by the time Nixon departed on that helicopter, the public's view was shifting. Most people think either that the federal government has made no change in their lives or made their lives worse. Americans have majority confidence in only two institutions, medicine and trash collection. Public trust was broken in a way that's very hard to imagine today because it's never recovered. This is a really important point because the loss of confidence in government created the conditions for the rest of this story and for the shift that followed in our politics. All of the major players that you'll hear were responding in some way to the new political environment. Loss of trust is our starting point. Gerald Ford had the daunting task of restoring trust. Minutes after Nixon departed, Ford stood in the East Room of the White House. A packed audience of politicians, reporters, and well-wishers watched as he raised his right hand and repeated the oath of office. I, Gerald R. Ford, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute, that I will faithfully execute. Sweat shined on his broad forehead. He'd never expected to be here, He'd never run for national office, not for president, not for vice president. He'd been elevated to that role less than a year before. Protect and defend. He finished the oath, the new president. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. Ford turned to his audience and the cameras. 90% of Americans watching TV were watching him. In this moment of uncertainty, Ford himself was a question mark. His pollster, Bob Teeter, later reflected. 
It was amazing how little people knew about Jerry Ford. It sounds hard to believe, a sitting president who was not very well known. How would Ford introduce himself? What could he say to reassure the country? I assume the presidency under extraordinary circumstances. He spoke briefly and plainly. I am acutely aware that you have not elected me as your president by your ballots. So I ask you to confirm me as your president with your prayers. And then Ford made a famous assertion, or depending on how you view it, a promise. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. And people so disheartened by lies and political strife of the past two years, for a moment, chose to believe him. Maybe there was good reason to believe. In a way, Ford was the perfect person to restore trust. Dependable, good-natured, well-liked. This refrain had described Jerry Ford since the 1920s. His high school classmates in Grand Rapids, Michigan, recalled, Ford was a very friendly man. Was a good fellow everybody liked. Ford was tall, blonde, handsome, popular, good at sports, nice to everyone, the golden boy. He went to college on a football scholarship. At the University of Michigan, he played center. He was the consummate teammate, dependable, good-natured, well-liked. He was so good that offers rolled in from NFL teams. But Ford chose law school. He enrolled at Yale and did some modeling on the side. Golden boy. In World War II, he directed anti-aircraft gunfire from a carrier in the Pacific. The war instilled in him the belief in government that was endemic at the time, specifically that the U.S. had a role in world affairs. When he returned home to Michigan, Ford joined a group of local Republicans. They wanted to oust their incumbent congressman and isolationist. Soon, Ford was the candidate, the golden boy war hero. During the campaign, he married a woman considered to be the most eligible in Grand Rapids, a former model and dancer named Betty Bloomer. Golden boy meets golden girl. A month later, he was elected to Congress. He lacked the star qualities of some of his contemporaries, the electric charm of Congressman John F. Kennedy or the ruthless cunning of Congressman Nixon. But he was friends with both. He was friends with everyone. His colleagues quickly sang the refrain, Jerry Ford was dependable, good-natured, well-liked. A decade passed. Ford's hair thinned, started to go gray. He gained wrinkles, but not many. Then, in 1964, Republicans in the House looked for a new leader, and they landed on the Golden Boy, now a bit silver. An aide recalled why. They just liked Jerry. They just liked Jerry. Another decade later, and that same refrain propelled him further than he ever imagined. It was 1973. Jerry and Betty were discussing his retirement. They decided he'd quit after one more term in Congress. But then, 
a bribery scandal engulfed the vice president, Spiro Agnew. News broke that he'd extorted hundreds of thousands of dollars from contractors. They slipped him envelopes of cash in his office. Mr. Agnew resigns as vice president and pleads no contest to one count of income tax evasion. The Justice Department drops all other pending charges. The country needed a new VP. Nixon would choose a fellow Republican, obviously. But Congress, controlled by Democrats, would have to confirm his choice. There was really only one sure nominee. The man whose name I will submit to the Congress of the United States for confirmation as the Vice President of the United States, Congressman Gerald Ford of Michigan. Jerry Ford, who'd never run for anything more than his House seat in Grand Rapids, Michigan, became Vice President of the United States because he was dependable, good-natured, well-liked. And you could add one more word to that refrain as he was confirmed. Honest. Because of the scandals in the Nixon administration, Congress ran a particularly extreme background check on Ford. The committee questioned Ford and his supporters for two days question his critics for two days and received a 1,700-page FBI report. The overwhelming conclusion? He was clean. And so you can see why Ford fit the moment so well when Nixon left on the helicopter nine months later and the new president proclaimed to a shaken people, Our long national nightmare is over. It'd be hard to cast someone more suited to restore trust than this dependable, good-natured, well-liked, honest man. Although, one question lingered as he took office. He might be a nice guy, but was he really up to the job? This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center. Every year, millions of people lose someone to cancer. But as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center ranked in the country's top 4%, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center is unrelenting in finding new ways to understand, detect, treat, and prevent cancer, unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. Learn more at MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. A young White House speechwriter was in the crowd watching Nixon's helicopter fly off. He remembers glancing at the new president. It was as if the weight of the world had fallen upon Jerry Ford. David Gergen says Ford looked stone-faced. He'd pictured retirement as his next step, not this. He never expected to be president. He never sought the presidency. And he did not have large visions of trying to rule the universe. There was no time to prepare, no transition. The Fords couldn't even move into the White House until the Nixon's things were packed off. The new president commuted to the Oval Office from his house in Virginia. The Fords opened the front door every morning to a mob scene. They took over the whole damn neighborhood. Ford recalled to his biographer. Secret Service, press, 
Our poor neighbors went through hell. There's a famous photo that captures Ford in the Oval Office that first week. He's at the desk, on the phone, his expression serious. And behind him, the bookshelves. They're bare. An open box lies empty next to him. All the Nixon stuff had been taken off, but no Ford stuff had been put on there. White House photographer David Hume Kennerly took this shot. It showed, uh, uh, because of the empty shelves, that this transition happened so quickly. It was so abrupt. But something else that photo shows. His posture. Ford leans back in his chair. His foot is up, resting on the desk of the Oval Office. He's casual, relaxed. I wasn't terrified. I wasn't scared. I felt secure that I was prepared to do the job. And for an incoming president, he had an unusual political flexibility. Ford hadn't made campaign promises. He hadn't campaigned. He wasn't worried about getting elected to a full term. He and Betty still planned to retire once they'd weathered this. His overarching challenge was that issue of trust, restoring confidence in government, ending the nightmare. He was trying to send a message that the White House was in new hands and they were, they were in safe hands, that he could be trusted. To some extent, he could do this just by not being Richard Nixon. Nixon had famously leveraged division for political gain. He sought out wedge issues. For Nixon, politics was us versus them, his silent majority against an angry rabble. Ford immediately signaled a change in tone. He threw open the White House doors to groups that had been shunned. He invited the Congressional Black Caucus for a meeting. It was almost three and a half years ago when it met with Richard Nixon. And won praise for it. Uh, We're going to have a president that we can work with. He met with feminist leaders. I think there was almost an immediate difference. Audrey Rowe chaired the women's rights group, the National Women's Political Caucus. Access was really there and a willingness to hear points of view. There were smaller changes. In the Nixon White House, custodial staff had been ordered not to speak to the first couple. Jerry and Betty wondered why it was so silent, until they found out and reversed the order. But the new president also quickly took big policy swings. He proposed clemency for deserters and draft evaders from the Vietnam War. He made the announcement in front of a powerful veterans group. So I'm throwing the weight of my presidency into the scales of justice on the side of leniency. The reception in the room was stunned and chilly. Ford knew it would be, but David Kennerly says he felt he owed his fellow veterans an explanation. Riding in the limo with him, he said, well, Dave, he said, the one thing I don't have to worry about when I give this speech is being interrupted by applause. The reaction didn't matter. The president wasn't trying to boost his approval. After all, he was retiring, right? What did he care if interest groups liked him? But it turned out his actions felt refreshingly devoid of calculation. The whole vibe of the new administration caught on. The president of the United States. President Jerry Ford was once again well-liked. Change from Nixon to Ford is likely to give a psychological lift. 71% approve of Mr. Ford's performance since he took over the presidency, and only 3% disapprove. He liked the job, too. He liked the perks, the bowl of strawberries on Air Force One, the perpetually full tobacco tin for his pipe. Maybe he thought he didn't want to retire. Maybe he would run for a full term. Polls showed voters wanted that. 
They preferred him over even the most prominent presidential prospects. Mr. Ford, as you can see, drew almost twice as many votes as Senator Kennedy. As his first month in office ended, Ford decided he would run for a full term. But the political honeymoon soon crashed to an end. The catalyst was a press conference, his first as president. Press conferences are risky. Reporters can ask about anything. Ignorance, flubs, even hesitation can look bad. The risk for Ford was heightened. He was still proving that he was up to the job. But a good performance could assure the nation and media of his competence. So, in preparation, Ford spent hours in briefings, having staff fire mock questions at him. Now he was at the podium, and the questions flooded in. They asked about post-Watergate reforms. You plan to set up a code of ethics for the executive branch? The code of ethics that will be followed will be the example that I set. How he would tackle inflation, the top economic problem. Wage and price controls are out, period. About getting buy-in from Democrats in Congress and unions, traditionally GOP opponents. Uh, So we're all in this boat together, along with labor and management and everybody else. Ford was never a great public speaker, but it was hard not to be impressed by his knowledge of the issues, the latest moves in the Cold War. The Soviet Union already has three major uh, naval operating bases in the Indian Ocean. He even delved into the budget numbers in a bill that had passed hours earlier which would have added 780-some million dollars over and above the budget for this year and a substantial increase. uh, The press conference wrapped, and it seemed like another win, a good showing where he displayed both candor and command. But one question had come up repeatedly over the course of his half hour at the podium. It was about the former president. And specifically, would you use your pardon authority if necessary? The option of a pardon is still an option that you... If an indictment is brought, would you grant a pardon before any trial took place? Ford was noncommittal. But behind the scenes, this question of what to do about Nixon increasingly bedeviled him. His personal aide, Terry O'Donnell, says lawyers and investigators were constantly requesting his time. When I went in and told him about another request. You could see how aggravated he was. He was really upset. He had all this work to do. He was very conscientious, and he was learning the toughest job in the country. And it seemed that every time he got going on something, Watergate would intervene. Ford walked out of the press conference, picturing questions about the ex-president consuming the rest of his term. It would come after he was indicted, which he was going to be, after he was convicted, which he was going to be, after his appeal. It was a never-ending process. Right then, he made the decision for which he's best known, and he abruptly ended the honeymoon. I have, in my own mind, said, God damn it, I'm not going to put up with it. And the only way to get out of it is to do what I did. Pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, 
a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. The reaction to the pardon was swift and brutal. It was explosive what happened. Disgusting. I think he belongs in jail, just like any totally. other citizen. Totally. Off the wall. He's just one of the boys, as far as I'm concerned. I think it was really bad thing to do. This right? seems against the will of the people. A sizable majority, 60%, said they disapproved of the pardon. Maybe Ford was overconfident after the positive reaction to his first month in office. But David Kennerly says the president hadn't expected the vitriol of the backlash. It was a total surprise. I think one of the things he would have probably, if he had to do it over, he would have laid the groundwork a little more for it. Ford thought people would generally understand why he'd done it. They did not. A considerable drop-off in the public support for President Ford. At a press conference a week later, he encountered a radically different tone from reporters. Do you find any conflicts of interest in the decision to grant a sweeping pardon to your lifelong friend? Why did you grant only a conditional amnesty to the Vietnam War draft debaters while granting a full pardon to President Nixon? Are your watchwords of your administration still openness and candor? This was the crux. In a political environment septic with distrust, the pardon looked like more corruption, like Ford must have cut a backroom deal to absolve Nixon in exchange for power. What we did have was a second potential scandal. Ford aide David Gergen says questions about the pardon threatened to consume his presidency. Ford conferred with congressional leaders. What could he do to clear this up? They agreed that he would take a step no president had since Abraham Lincoln. Ford appeared before a congressional panel to testify as to why he'd pardoned Nixon. He was adamant there was no deal. If we had had this series, an indictment, a trial, a conviction, and anything else that transpired after that, that the attention of the president, the Congress, and the American people would have been diverted from the problems that we have to solve. The testimony seemed to work. At least it placated lawmakers. There was no pardon gate to follow Watergate. And Ford swore until he died that he'd made no deal. Still, once he'd issued that pardon, any trust he'd won back from the public during a short time as president evaporated. The pardon changed everything. I mean, it cratered his approval ratings. President Ford's job approval rating the lowest ever recorded for a president at that early stage of his presidency. For a brief moment, it had looked like Gerald Ford might be able to restore Americans' belief in their government. Instead, the pardon poisoned it further. Public trust has never recovered. And after the pardon, it seemed like any effort Ford made to bring the country together only divided it further. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. 96% of users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing. Save time with one click and go from editing drafts in hours to seconds. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions to help your team make their point and move faster. 
Make a bigger impact at work. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. The national mood soured again the next year, in 1975, when another helicopter fled a different capital. This time it was in Saigon, South Vietnam. Communist forces are finally closing in on the capital. The government collapsed after the U.S. had spent more than a decade in a bloody war to prop it up. The communist tanks rolled into Saigon. If Nixon's helicopter exit from the presidency had dented faith in government at home, the helicopters leaving Vietnam shattered myths about the nation's power and righteousness abroad. Desperate scenes families separated and crying out for help, pleading not to be left behind. Ford had no choice but to order the American withdrawal. A decade's worth of poor political decisions had led to this moment. But it spawned more disillusionment, more distrust. So too with the economy. Prices for food and gas continued to climb. Inflation reached double digits. Companies announced mass layoffs. Describing the economic crisis required a new word. They've hung a new label on it called stagflation. 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 Ford tried to level with the American people. He proclaimed in his first State of the Union address. And I must say to you that the State of the Union is not good. It was not well received. He found himself in a running squabble with the Democratic-controlled Congress about how to fix the economy. The president said he would veto mandatory rationing. Ford argued less spending would tamp down inflation. Congress proposed more. So Ford... He will veto it. His vetoes became a running headline. President Ford today vetoed a bill for the 35th time. It looked like gridlock at a time when the nation needed solutions, which is a shame because actually the vetoes were often a prelude to compromise. Both sides took a hard stance before meeting on middle ground. Democratic leaders went to the White House today in search of a compromise and found one. The back and forth between Ford and the Democratic Congress was what's supposed to happen. The parties and the branches of government debating and finding consensus. But in a time of distrust, healthy politicking came across as more dysfunction. It was like a bobbing through the minefield. And because of the pardon, any misstep was going to kill him. A mutiny brewed within his own party. One faction of Republicans was increasingly furious with him, conservatives. Today, we're confronted with an administration which has frittered away every potential for national support. The country's largest conservative organization is downright hostile towards President Ford. The right wing of the GOP was a growing force, but it was just one block. 
you have to understand how different the parties looked from today's. They were not cleanly divided along ideological lines. They were jumbled. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party both contained conservatives and liberals. If you look back, there had been a progressive side of the party. Audrey Rowe, a black woman who was chair of the feminist group, the National Women's Political Caucus, was also a Republican. The Republican Party was the first party to embrace the Equal Rights Amendment. Moderates and progressives could talk to one another and we could engage. It had started to change. Nixon had won by courting conservative Democrats, upset about civil rights and other social movements. He'd folded them into his Republican coalition, especially to win the South, which had been a Democratic stronghold. This was labeled the Southern Strategy. The Southern Strategy had newly empowered conservatives. And now they were outraged because Ford seemed determined to steer away from it. The Southern chairman got together because, as one said last week, was not exactly fun down home. There was amnesty, black caucus, 10% tax on gas, women's rights. They were horrified that he was reaching out and compromising. Has the people confused about where he stands? The former actor and governor, Ronald Reagan, attacked Ford from the right. I think the people are terribly disturbed. They hated that Ford was calling for a rollback to what the party had been less focused on any one ideology. We must erect a tent that is big enough for all who care about this great country. Nothing signified this attitude more than Ford's pick for vice president. He nominated the standard bearer for liberal Republicans, Nelson Rockefeller. And the right wing howled. The single most unacceptable nominee one might contemplate, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. Ford wasn't phased by the criticism from his own party. I don't think he worried at all about it. He just plowed ahead. His personal aide, Terry O'Donnell, says Ford expected the backlash. He knew the gap between what he was doing and the conservative movement. He knew he was not appealing to them politically. Part of it was that he honestly didn't share their values. He was tight-fisted about government spending. But he represented a lot of Republicans of the time in that he'd also voted for the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. He'd supported women's rights. And there were more practical reasons he could defy the conservatives. One, they were a relatively small portion of the electorate. And two, what were they going to do? He was the incumbent president, even if unelected, and Republicans didn't challenge their incumbents. Still, the dissatisfaction marinated within his own party as Ford's overall approval dipped. Pundits and political watchers wondered, was Jerry Ford up to the presidency? Reporters asked him pointed, sometimes rude questions about his ability and even his intelligence. Can you grow into this job, sir? Do you really have time to give serious thought to questions? When, when do you reserve time to just think about things? A new picture of Ford replaced the image of the relaxed president with his feet up on the desk. This was Ford face down on the ground. It happened when he was arriving in Salzburg, Austria. A band played as Air Force One landed. The door to the cabin opened. Jerry and Betty stepped out from the plane. President Ford made an unconventional arrival in Salzburg. It was raining as he and Mrs. Ford came down the steps leading from Air Force One. The president caught a heel and fell. Ford just collapsed, untouched, slid down the last few steps. 
Mr. Ford said he was all right. He got up quickly, obviously embarrassed. It was an old football injury, a bad knee giving out. But between the suddenness of it, the music, and the broadcast playing the whole thing straight, it was high comedy. The spill seemed to capture the spirit of this presidency. Ford couldn't keep anything from falling. Not South Vietnam, not the economy, not himself. A new edgy sketch comedy show made its debut. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! A staple of early Saturday Night Live was the comedian Chevy Chase and his bumbling, stumbling Jerry Ford. And now for my second announcement. Chase's Ford couldn't drink a glass of water without spilling. And you never quite knew when he might crash to the ground. Oh, no problem. No. Okay. No problem. Sorry. Even today, the sketches remain so funny, they did not help the president shed his image of ineptitude. Instead, SNL branded it further into the public consciousness. Ford thought things would turn around. He thought if he just did a good job, if the economy improved, if voters felt safer, they would come around. He had time, more than a year until the election. His policies could kick in. People would see how competent he was, how dependable and reliable. And he had other things going for him. Polls showed Americans were back to liking Ford personally, even if they questioned his fitness for the job. And they loved his wife, Betty. If Jerry was refreshingly down to earth for a president, Betty Ford was a surprise. When we went to the White House to chat with Betty Ford, we expected to find, quite honestly, a rather bland and predictable political wife. But Betty Ford was cool. She was open. She breezily spoke her mind about things public figures simply hadn't. I told my husband, if we have to go to the White House, okay, I will go. But I'm going as myself, and it's too late to change my pattern. Her biggest breakout came during this 60 Minutes interview. She talked favorably about going to a psychiatrist. I was a little beaten down. And he built up my ego. She talked about surviving breast cancer, about abortion, about how she would treat her daughter if she found out she'd had premarital sex. Remember, this was 1975. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I think she's a perfectly normal human being. The interview outraged conservatives, of course, but otherwise won her widespread acclaim. Polls showed Betty Ford as one of the most popular first ladies ever. And together... Jerry and Betty were fun. They bantered. My favorite is a signing ceremony in the cabinet room in the White House. Jerry reiterated his support for the ERA, a constitutional amendment declaring equal rights for women. Before I sign this, Betty, if you have any uh, words of wisdom or encouragement, uh, you're welcome to speak. Betty had worked on him on this issue for years. Congratulations, Mr. President. I'm glad to uh, you have come a long, long way. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. So it was hard not to like the Fords. Also, while the president expected to run unopposed as the Republican candidate, Democrats would have a messy fight for their nomination, as it seemed they always did. Ford would have time to prepare for whoever emerged. In the meantime, He could continue governing on a middle path, watching the economy improve, gaining more distance from the pardon. So imagine his dismay 
in November of 1975, when that plan was disrupted. It was a year before he thought he'd face voters. He was in the Oval Office, meeting with the vice president and senior officials. An aide came in and quietly slipped him a note. Ronald Reagan was on the line. The call was short, four minutes, and the gist Ford recalled was simple. I got a telephone call from Governor Reagan saying that he was going to be a candidate against me. I told him I thought it was unwise, it would divide the party. Uh, He felt differently. Ford was angry, unhappy, but not worried. There was just not this sense that, oh, this is just politically catastrophic. He wasn't going to have a problem beating a Hollywood actor. I think he felt he would prevail without having to work overtime, and that did not pan out at all. The primary battle between Ford and Reagan was personal. He really resented Reagan going after him. And it was close, the closest presidential primary race we've ever had. He almost pulled it off. He came pretty close to pulling it off. At stake was not just who the candidate would be, but the future of the Republican Party. Ford was the old guard, big tent institutionalist determined to rebuild the GOP in its former image. And Ronald Reagan wanted to lead a conservative revolution. We had a pretty bitter contest, and it was head-to-head, knock-down, drag-out affair. That's next time on Landslide. God bless you, Governor Reagan. see a full bibliography for this episode on our show page at wfae.org slash landslide. Landslide is a production of Nuanced Tales. It is created, hosted, reported, produced, and written by me, Ben Bradford, edited by Rick Carr, engineering and sound design by Jay Siebold. Our music is composed and performed by Matt Bradford. Hannah Luck created the cover art. Landslide is produced in partnership with WFAE. Greg Collard and Eli Portillo provided editorial support and strategic guidance. Web design and marketing support by Jen Wang and Lena Hong. Judon Marshall is the CEO at WFAE. The podcast is distributed by the NPR Network. Thanks to Dan McCoy, Lindsay McKenna, Gary Duong, and the rest of the team at NPR. To see more about Landslide, visit our website at wfae.org landslide. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. 
On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.